0: I'm Catherine Hadro tonight on EWTN News Nightly. Nine new tax crime charges. The numbers keep adding up and that equals more legal troubles for the president's son, Hunter. We're at the White House. Pro-life uproar. The Department of Health and Human Services is targeting pregnancy centers. How lawmakers are fighting back. A reassuring sign. Pope Francis delivers a special angelus from his window for the first time in two weeks and Christmas at the Vatican. Learn more about the history behind nativity scenes at St. Peter's Basilica. The story of its origins may surprise you. These stories and more tonight.
1: From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly.
0: Thank you for being with us on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm Catherine Hadro in for Tracy Sable. Our top story tonight, a federal grand jury indicts President Joe Biden's son Hunter on nine tax charges, saying he engaged in a four-year scheme in which he chose not to pay over a million dollars in taxes. Hunter later handed over the money, but he could still face years behind bars if he's convicted of the three felonies and six misdemeanors. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports, Owen.
1: Catherine, good evening to you. As President Joe Biden flew off to Nevada and California today, his son, 53-year-old Hunter Biden, stands accused of filing a false return and tax evasion. The charging documents detail spending on drugs, strippers, luxury hotels, and exotic cars. President Joe Biden exits the White House walking right past reporters shouting questions about his son. President. Sir, have you, have you spoken to your son? Hunter Biden could be looking at a maximum of 17 years in prison if he's convicted of the tax crimes he's charged with. According to special counsel David Weiss, Hunter Biden spent millions of dollars on an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying his tax bills. But Hunter Biden's defense attorney, Abby Lowell, accusing Weiss of bowing to Republican pressure in the case and saying based on the facts and the law, if Hunter's last name was anything other than Biden, the charges in Delaware and now California would not have been brought.
2: One former attorney general weighing in but I think there is certainly political pressure that exists in this case that you would not see uh, with regard to other matters. The new charges are in addition to
1: federal firearms charges against Hunter Biden in Delaware.
2: Nobody wants to be um, under felony indictment in two different places, so for him personally... Um, this is something that's going to be very difficult.
1: The new indictment comes amidst a special counsel investigation into the business dealings of President Biden's son, and as congressional Republicans pursue an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, claiming he was engaged in an influence peddling scheme with Hunter. Earlier this week, President Biden, when confronted with such claims, responded. I'm not going to comment that I did not, and It's just a bunch of lies. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump trying to win back the White House, facing several legal accusations as well. He was in court earlier this week defending himself. It's
3: a fraud. The whole case is a fraud.
1: And more court dates ahead for him as well. Also today, White House press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded to questions from reporters about Hunter Biden. She repeated that the president loves his son and is proud of him. She also said President Biden will not pardon Hunter. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News nightly.
0: Thank you, Owen. Backlash is growing following the recent congressional testimony by the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania regarding anti Semitism on campus. A major donor at Penn says the current president is not standing up to anti Semitism, and he is threatening to withhold a $100 million donation unless the president steps down. This, as the president at Harvard now says, she failed to properly denounce threats of violence against Jewish students. Yesterday, just one day after the Capitol Hill testimony, a rabbi and visiting scholar at Harvard's Divinity School announced his resignation from its anti-Semitism advisory board. Rabbi David Wolpe, writing in part on X, the painfully inadequate testimony reinforced the idea that I cannot make the sort of difference I had hoped. Joining us now is Rabbi David Wolpe, Rabbinic Fellow for the Anti-Defamation League. Rabbi, thanks for being here, and happy Hanukkah. We know the obvious reasons, but tell us more about why you resigned from your position at Harvard.
4: So I'm still a visiting scholar at Harvard. I resigned from the Anti-Semitism Advisory Commission, and the reason that I did that was because it seemed clear to me that I was not going to be able to push forward the kinds of changes that I think not only Harvard, but a lot of the elite universities so desperately need in order to reverse what I see as both an intellectual and a cultural decline.
0: Harvard President Claudine Gay apologized today for her remarks on Capitol Hill earlier this week. I want to get your reaction to this exchange she had with New York Representative Elise Stefanik. Do you know what the number one hate crime in America is?
5: I know that over the last couple of months, there has been an alarming rise of anti-Semitism, which I understand is the critical topic that we are here to discuss. That's correct. It is anti-Jewish hate crimes. And Harvard ranks the lowest when it comes to protecting Jewish students.
0: This is why I've called for your resignation. And your testimony today, not being able to answer with moral clarity, speaks volumes. I yield back. Rabbi, your reaction to that exchange?
4: So I want to say I, I'm a rabbi. I don't decide who should or shouldn't run universities. I don't call for people's resignations. Um, but my reaction to the exchange is sort of my reaction to the, to, to the presidents of all the universities, which was that I would hope from any leader that you could muster indignation over the fact that students are in danger, that anti-Semitism is rising. And they may feel it, but uh, they would have done themselves enormous good had they just pounded the table once, had they said, it is unacceptable and awful that there's a rise of anti-Semitism at the elite institutions of learning in in America. And I won't stand for it as president, and I'm going to do everything I can to reverse. It's something that gave us a sense— that there was uh, an unwillingness to stand for what is clearly uh, an, an absolutely uh, intolerable situation. Um, unfortunately, there was a lot of, it seemed, lawyerly crafted language, which did not meet the moment.
0: Mm. Rabbi, what do you believe is at the root of why these prominent universities have been responding the way they have to, to these threats against Jewish students? In your resignation announcement, you said there is an ideology gripping many students and faculty that is, quote, intrinsically evil.
4: Yes, which is why I did not, I didn't say this person has done it or that person has done it. I think instead, the idea that, that all human beings can be cleaved into an oppressor and oppressed class of whatever group they are is itself evil because that not only deprives people of individual agency, you don't judge people as as images of God, as individuals, but also because it says this group has this characteristic and therefore does not deserve sympathy. And what happened on October 7th was that people saw Jews, Israelis being violated, murdered in the most horrible ways, and because they put them in a certain class of people, they had no sympathy mm-hmm. for them. And that is inhuman and it's evil.
0: Real quick, before I let you go, have you heard from any Harvard officials since your resignation? I
4: have, actually. And uh, I've spoken with the uh, the provost and uh, quick exchange with the president. And I think that they have been on the whole understanding of the, the reasons that I made the decision I did. Um, and, uh, and I just did a candlelighting with a bunch of Harvard students. Mm. And they were incredibly encouraging. And I'm really pleased to say very grateful.
0: Mm. Rabbi, again, thank you for your time and happy Hanukkah.
4: Happy Hanukkah. Thank you.
0: A dire warning today at a meeting of the United Nations Security Council. The intensified fighting in southern Gaza is making aid operations almost impossible.
6: There is a high risk of the total collapse of the humanitarian support system in Gaza, which would have devastating consequences. We anticipate that it would result in a complete breakdown of public order and increased pressure for mass displacement into
3: Egypt.
0: The IDF has reported the highest number of strikes in one day since the end of the truce with Hamas, hitting about 450 targets. Some of the heaviest fighting has been in Khan Yunus and southern Gaza. It's an area the Israeli army claims is a stronghold for Hamas. The American embassy in Baghdad has been hit with a rocket attack. U.S. and Iraqi authorities say the damage was minor. According to an official, no group has claimed responsibility, but indications pointed to Iran-aligned militias. This is the first confirmed attack on the embassy since the start of the Israel-Hamas war pregnant women seeking help may soon face a new obstacle. The Biden administration wants to strip millions of dollars from pregnancy care centers and maternity homes who support women and their unborn babies. Pro-life Republican lawmakers are fighting back. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us to explain more. Eric.
6: Good evening, Catherine. You know, there are about 3,000 pregnancy care centers nationwide, and many get their funding through a Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Well, now the Biden administration wants to drastically cut those funds. I spoke with those who run the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Care Center right here in Washington, D.C., who tell me that it could have devastating effects on other facilities across the country.
0: If that's cut for them, then they're going to need even more supplies from us. And, you know, people are wonderful and generous to donate. But that's, again, whether it's financial donations or whether it's material donations, it's go- it does affect
3: us.
6: Senator Josh Hawley joined a group of lawmakers who wrote Health and Human Services protesting the proposed rule change. He tells me this is all part of the Biden administration's effort to
2: shut down these facilities. They provide care to mothers. They provide care when the baby comes to the babies. They provide free diapers, free medical care in some instances. And the left wants to, to brand these as fake science clinics. They want to shut down. There are more pregnancy care centers around the country
6: than abortion clinics. They want to shut them all down. Directors at pregnancy care facilities are also hearing the administration may cut the amount of money given to parents in the program. This could limit medical care and needed supplies. Republicans tell me the Biden administration is raging war on the unborn.
0: Uh, it seems like they, 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 they never want to go after and prosecute the people who uh, who attack crisis pregnancy centers and churches after the Dobbs decision, but uh, you get you get someone who does something wrong, and it involves an an, an abortion clinic. Oh my goodness, they're 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 going after him.
1: The people that work for him are busy at work trying to pursue an ideological agenda and one that's. It's antithetical to the preservation and respect for human
6: life. But some Democrats charge that pregnancy centers are frauds advertising themselves as comprehensive health care providers, including abortion services, and should be closed.
0: Because the last thing, That a woman seeking reproductive care should have to worry about is whether she's being tricked, lied to, or deceived. It's almost as if the mothers who choose to keep their child needs to be punished by somebody. I mean, that's how it comes across to me.
6: I did speak with a number of Pregnancy Care Center directors. They tell me if those who are against them would only come in and sit down and watch the families each day receive the emotional and spiritual support, along with all the free baby clothes and supplies, they believe that minds would be changed. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News nightly.
0: Thank you, Eric. Ahead of tomorrow's annual Army-Navy football game in Massachusetts, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, who served in the National Guard, is speaking out against local hotel rooms being given to migrants over military veterans.
5: And we have heard of instances where those hotels are booting veterans out, they're canceling the reservations for the Army-Navy game. These are for the families of cadets and midshipmen. They are active-duty military members all going to Boston for uh, the big game at Gillette Stadium.
0: Senator Ernst blames the Biden administration. She says right-to-shelter laws are forcing hotels to cancel hundreds of reservations to house migrants. Massachusetts law guarantees emergency housing to homeless families and pregnant women, even if it means displacing others. We have a lot more still to come on EWTN News Nightly, including coal for Christmas, how you can support families in Afghanistan this winter, and full of grace, how we can be more like the Virgin Mary on today's Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Welcome back. Afghans are facing yet another brutal winter. Not only are an estimated 15 million already going hungry, now they are struggling to buy fuel to stay warm. One Catholic organization is helping to ease the burden this Christmas season. And earlier this week, EWTN News Nightly anchor Tracy Sable spoke with that group's founder.
5: Joining us now is Jason Jones, founder and president of the Vulnerable People Project, to tell us all about his organization's coal for Christmas campaign. Jason, great to see you again. Uh, you launched this initiative, as we know, three years ago, and since then it has grown tremendously. Uh, but for those who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about it and the reason you decided to launch it in the first place?
2: Thank you, Tracy. It's great to be back here again and under much better circumstances the first year. It was very dire. We launched this campaign as part of our initiative to support the widows and orphans of our afghan allies who were killed in action and also those afghan allies who were abandoned and left in afghanistan after the us withdrawal who were facing death by exposure and starvation through the winter in in, in the first 2 years of the program we've distributed enough coal to provide 40 million hours of heat and 5 million meals to the widows and orphans of our are our allies who are killed, our allies in hiding, and to religious and ethnic minorities suffering uh, acute hunger. And, you know, the mission of the Vulnerable People Project is to answer Solomon's plea in Ecclesiastes. I looked all over the world, and all I see is oppression, and on the side of the oppressor is power, and on the side of the oppressed there is no one. But, of course, as Catholics, we know that the mystical body of Christ, the Church, answers that plea the plea for the Messiah, the the plea for a savior. And so what we hope that we do through our Coal for Christmas campaign, modeling our work after St. Nicholas's example, is we stand with the poorest of the poor in the world as they suffer and strive to survive this brutal winter.
5: Yeah, and coal really isn't the only thing that the folks in Afghan need, the most vulnerable. Tell us what else you've been helping them with.
2: We've built a women's medical center. We provide security for girls' schools. We've distributed five million meals, and now Coal for Christmas um, is working closely with the Catholic community in Mongolia. Just this week, we distributed or purchased for distribution our first 40 tons of coal in Mongolia. They'll be distributed to and through. Um, the Christian communities there. So Call for Christmas started in Afghanistan and now has spread around the world.
5: Yeah. You and I were talking earlier and you're planning to launch an effort in the Philippines. Um, Of course, we all know what happened on Sunday, the bombing at the mass there. So it kind of changed things, your focus a little bit. But tell us your efforts there, VPP's efforts in the Philippines as well.
2: Yeah, we have a program called the Vulnerable Parish Project, where we seek to provide physical security, cameras, Uh, security guards, and also um, food security for the poorest Catholic parishes in the world. We're very active in Nigeria, Malawi, and Sudan. Um, But Mindanao, people think of the Philippines as a Catholic country, but in Mindanao, uh, there's a majority Muslim population, and there's the rise of ISIS, which is knitting together sort of thuggish gangs of of youth and fanatics. Um, And after... The opening up a Philippine's office was the number one goal in Mindanao for VPP in 2024. And in fact, I will be going to Mindanao in January. um, We're already working with the community, the Catholic community that was attacked before. Catholics died at that bombing of a school gymnasium where a mass was being celebrated. And um, as, as a Catholic apostolate that seeks to serve the most vulnerable people in the world, Uh, of course, we first seek to stand with our own co-religionists as they suffer persecution, uh, extreme hunger, and exposure.
5: Jason, before I let you go, I want to bring it back to the Coal uh, for Christmas campaign. You mentioned Mongolia that you are going into. What other countries are you also helping in before we let you go?
2: So this year, our Coal for Christmas, which is not just coal, it's coal, it's food, it's insulin. um, It's everything to help these families survive the brutal cold winter. Um, Afghanistan is still our priority because the World Food Program dramatically cut Afghanistan back because of lack of funding, but we've expanded into Mongolia and Malawi is suffering a famine, so we're expanding, uh, uh aggressively into, uh, um, into Malawi and Nigeria.
5: And if people want to help, how can they do so?
2: Our website is thegreatcampaign.org or coalforchristmas.org, and all of our donations through Advent are being doubled.
5: All right. That sounds wonderful. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about this. God bless you and God bless your efforts.
2: Thank you.
0: Jason adds that a donation of $250 will keep a family of five alive for the entire winter. Today is the 76th birthday of Hong Kong pro-democracy advocate Jimmy Lai. For now, the media mogul and practicing Catholic remains in prison. Lai has been in prison since late December, 2020. His charges include violations of China's national security law, measures that critics say are being used to silence dissent of the Communist Party. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, honoring the Blessed Virgin. The Holy Father makes a humble request to Our Lady, offering a unique yet traditional gift. Plus, the Vatican prepares for its annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony with a special surprise. Thanks for staying with us. Pope Francis delivers a message on today's solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He says there are two ways the faithful can be more like Our Lady. In a special address to the faithful, the Holy Father said Mary shows amazement at the works of God. She also shows trust in Him. Today marked the first time in nearly two weeks that Pope Francis read his Angelus reflection without assistance since being stricken with bronchitis. The Holy Father has been staying busy on today's solemnity. He also prayed in the Basilica of St. Mary Major and later offered his traditional blessing to the Blessed Virgin.
4: Que
0: After praying in front of an icon of Mary, where he placed three golden roses, Pope Francis paid his traditional homage to the statue of the Immaculate Conception in Rome's city center. Pope Francis entrusted all female victims of violence to Mary's protection, praying, please, dry their tears and those of their loved ones. Finally tonight, the Vatican is set to host its annual Lighting of the Christmas Tree tomorrow in St. Peter's Square, where it will also unveil its highly anticipated nativity scene. The history of the Vatican's nativity scene dates back to the 1980s. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tornhauser has more.
3: Around this time, 800 years ago, St. Francis of Assisi decided to create the first nativity scene. Francis had recently returned from the Holy Land. Impressed by his visit to Bethlehem, he intended to reenact a Nativity scene in Greccio, which is a small village he found very similar to the town of Bethlehem. It's only 62 miles away from Rome. To commemorate the anniversary, this year's Nativity scene in St. Peter's Square will come from the very same place as the first historic scene. At the Vatican, the tradition of Nativity scenes dates back to the year of 1982. It began when a Polish farmer brought a fir tree in his truck to Rome. The tree was placed in the center of St. Peter's Square as a gift for Pope St. John Paul II. It then became customary to have the Nativity of Jesus near the obelisk in St. Peter's Square with the Christmas tree beside it. Over the years, the Vatican has displayed many manger scenes, including the 100 Nativity Scenes initiative, which began in 2018. It brings together the work of numerous artisans depicting the beloved scenes. Again this year, for a month, more than 120 nativity scenes from 22 countries around the world will be on display under the colonnade of the square. For more than four decades, many nativity scenes have been installed in St. Peter's Square, and in recent years, there's been more and more room for artists' imagination and creativity. In 2013, on the occasion of the first Christmas for Pope Francis, a traditional Neapolitan nativity scene arrived at the Vatican. Sixteen shepherds, dressed in typical costumes, reenacted the birth of the baby Jesus. A few years later, in 2018, a monumental sand nativity scene was created, 16 meters wide and five meters high. The sand came from the beach of Yesalo, a town in Northern Italy. In 2020, the year of the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, the nativity scene in St. Peter's Square was donated by the Diocese of Teramo. It consisted of larger than life-size ceramic statues, a work created by the students and teachers Of an art school. Last year, the nativity scene in the square was made in Udine, in the northeast of Italy, by master craftsmen from Sutrio. Another dear tradition is the blessing that the Pope bestows on the statuettes of baby Jesus. The children of Rome bring their figures to the Vatican. On the last Sunday before Christmas. Afterwards, they place them in their own home crib. It's an event that is repeated each year throughout the churches of the Diocese of Rome, and also in the Vatican. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser and Matteo Chaffi, EWTN News nightly.
0: We thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media: Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News nightly. I'm Catherine Hadro. Good night. And God bless.